Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As you know, on this podcast, we do like to compare and discuss the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners. So let me take a moment here at the top to introduce to you who is joining us for this month's conversation. Glad to welcome back to the podcast, Head of Asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Excited to welcome to the forum as well, a Brian Nick of Nuveen Asset Management. Brian serves as the Chief Investment Strategist for Nuveen and is a member of Nuveen's Global Investment Committee, where he works closely with the firm's investment leaders to identify investment trends and provide insights on events driving market activity. So Brian, Jason, it's great to be with you both here on the podcast. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. I know we have a lot we want to catch up on, though. Thank you both for taking the time. Appreciate it. Nice to be back, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, Dan. Good to be here. To get started, to acknowledge where we are today and where we may be headed from here, Brian, with all of the turbulence that investors have endured throughout the course of 2022, many might be wondering at this point, well, when will a bottom be reached, which of course is very difficult to uh, predict. So, Brian, what is your overall market outlook for, let's say, the next three to six months? Well, I I always hesitate to say that you can explain everything that's happened in the markets with one graph or one data series, but I did my best in our fourth quarter outlook to use a graph that just showed what market participants' expectations were going to be for the Federal Reserve's sort of peak interest rate in this cycle, and just graph that on top of a measure of financial conditions that's developed by Goldman Sachs, and you see the two line up really well. So as market participants continue to be surprised by and anticipate still more rate hikes from the Fed. That's basically driving the dollar higher. It's driving rates higher across the spectrum of maturities. Uh, it's causing credit spreads to stay wider than they would otherwise, and it's causing the equity markets to be uh, uh, more more uh, valued lower than they would be otherwise. And you know, I think the next three to six months, that time horizon is going to be quite rocky with respect to markets trying to kind of feel where the bottom's going to be, trying to feel maybe where the top's going to be for interest rates. But I do think ultimately we will get some signal from the Fed and perhaps from other central banks about timing a peak in rates or sort of a pause in rate hikes. could be a gradual one if we get a little bit of a tapering off of the pace of rate hikes. But I think that will be the sort of the window for expecting that to happen. And I think that will happen in the context of Economic growth getting quite a bit softer, especially compared to 2021. Um, home construction and sort of residential real estate in general um, having a very difficult time, recessionary conditions in that part of the economy. But investors beginning to benefit from the fact that economic uh, conditions have created a, a much um, different and much higher level of yields across a variety of asset classes with defaults still well contained. So I think investors will feel at some point in the next three to six months as if they're in better shape and better positioned. Uh, to succeed going forward than they are today. But I think the path from here to there is not going to be a smooth one. Okay, so it sounds like investors might be in store for some challenging conditions near term. Jason, same question in terms of your near-term outlook, three to six-month time period. What's your market outlook? What can investors expect throughout that span? Well, I think you know more of the same in terms of market volatility and these market swings that we've seen for the past six months of, you know, some extended rallies, uh, uh, you know, going up, you know, 10 plus percent, but also, you know, some sharp downturns uh, of that magnitude. So I think that is the dynamic that we're going to, you know, continue with, you know, for the, at least for the time being, 
uh, with the markets trading on any kind of news, you know, whether it's economic news, you know, Fed news, that really kind of does change on like, you know, when does the Fed potentially, you know, pivot, dial back their hikes, stop them outright. Like, I think that's the overarching, you know, dynamic. Uh, but when you think about then in, within that constraint or that, that is, you know, construct, construct, the risk reward skew still feels like it's a little more to the downside, especially after we've seen markets, you know, just in the, in the past week or so, you know, rally on, uh, you know, uh, maybe expectations that the Fed could start to dial things back a little bit. So if we are sort of range bound for equity markets, you know, we're getting closer to the top of the range, which suggests that the risk reward is certainly more kind of skewed to the downside, which is kind of probably also why we would think there's, you know, sort of protecting the downside right now is, is the reasonable strategy. So very much is, is the Fed, uh, what they're going to do uh, and, and what they kind of announce even next week, which then sort of brings me back to actually to, for you, Brian, just a question on, um, you know, you know, the markets on Friday reacted positively to the news story that was in the Wall Street Journal uh, by uh, Nick Timoros, who some believe is sort of like the Fed whisperer. He's, you know, has some, you know, kind of he's the, you know, a channel which maybe Fed officials want they want to convey something. Uh, we'll kind of go to him to kind of, you know, communicate to the public this is what the Fed might do to kind of, you know, give the markets a little bit of a heads up, especially now that we've gone into blackout period for the Fed before, you know, they had the next FOMC meeting on November 2nd. We can overinterpret and overanalyze every word that comes out of the Fed or every media report. But it was interesting that, you know, if this is something from the Fed officials that's suggesting, like, you know, after they do 75, they're going to debate how much more they do there. Knowing the markets react favorably, favorably to that, therefore easing financial conditions. I wonder if like, is that is sort of a signal that the, firm, that the Fed is getting kind of more comfortable with how much they've done and then therefore they can dial it back. You know, curious, like, how maybe you've interpreted, you know, that information is would you read much into it? Um, you know, or is it just like all part of the, the narrative that's going to play out in the coming months? I guess I would read something into it. The Tim Rose, he's got that really good gig at the Wall Street Journal. It's always somebody there. Back when I was at the Fed, it was, I think it was Greg Hip, who was sort of the Fed whisperer. He's, you know, the, the reason, for example, we had all that volatility around the June FOMC meeting is because the, the Fed apparently decided during the blackout period it was going to hike by 75 instead of 50. And the only way they could convey this legally because of the blackout period was to, uh, to strongly indicate to Nick Timorous they were uh, thinking about going 75. So now the reverse is happening. But what's been fascinating is the last really good example you can find of this was in July when every market sort of ripped upwards, whether it's the Treasury market or the equity market or everything in between, because there was uh, this sense that you know ended up being wrong, that the Fed was thinking about slowing down or maybe the inflation data was going to soften up a lot and give the Fed room to, to, to pause or pivot if that's what they wanted to do. Um, and then that ended up not being the case. The Fed had to kind of jolt us back into reality. It's a combination of the Fed's rhetoric and its its policy forecasts and also the data itself, um, you know, jolted the market back into reality. And we're back now at you know, roughly the same level of the S&P that we were at the bottoms in mid-June, maybe a little higher than that. Um, I I think it's maybe too soon to, to say whether this is a real thing from the Fed. I mean, hopefully they are continuing to consider the what the right – policy changes at all these meetings, just going 75 and hiking, hiking, hiking um, without much of a message for markets as to what's going to cause them to slow down or even what their theory of the case is uh, for how this is going to slow things down, how this is going to stop inflation, um, just invites more danger and, and I think, you know, an increased risk of a of a policy mistake. Um, it would be nice to see the Fed maybe take a little bit of a breather and assess what, if any, impact their policy changes so far have had on the economy and have clearly on the markets, but not much evidence that it's disrupting the consumer or um, hiring managers for businesses um, and whether they end up going too far further than they need to. 
um, is going to very much depend on, on the nature of the, the pivot or the pause or how quickly they slow down. At this point, I'm, I'm willing to, to believe they're considering uh, going by less in December, but I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and if the data doesn't give them a reason to do it, it's going to be very hard for them to find an excuse if we continue to get hot inflation data and continue to get really strong job creation. Actually, kind of a follow-up question that, you know, we're looking at what's going on in the markets, you know, in the past week or so. It is up over 5%, the S&P. There's elements of, like, kind of what happened in the summer where pessimism was extremely negative in June, uh, positioning was very light, and then the market started to kind of move higher, uh, and then we ended up having a bear market rally. And so there's elements of that that seem similar with you know, going through 3Q earnings that are maybe a little bit better than, than feared, sort of like the second quarter earnings season. Uh, you maybe have chatter about the Fed dying back at least to the margin, but the sentiment and position has been very light. So it does feel like there's a potential sort of tailwind for the markets to kind of move higher. And certainly talking to and hearing from hedge funds, I think they've been de-risk so, so much that any kind of rally they chase that, they're more worried about kind of the markets moving higher and missing out than them going down. How much maybe does that sort of technical kind of short-term dynamics influence your, like, you know, your new being sort of thinking about, you know, the outlook? As, you know, it's kind of noise into the market, but is it something that, that kind of plays much of a role in how you kind of assess the outlook? Yeah, the way fall has gone is just different from the summer in one important respect, which is we continue to see interest rates just march higher. And that brief reprieve that we got over the summer, everything was rallied, right? Credit spreads were tightening up, but the tenure dropped a lot during that period as well. That has not happened this time around. We continue to see this inexorable rise in rates across the curve. And if anything, maybe the equity markets have built in some durability or at least are willing to tolerate those higher interest rates as long as they come with you know some loose assurance on the other end that the Fed is eventually going to stop and there won't be a sort of a catastrophic effect on earnings. So the way that the economy is sort of held together, earnings still look like they've held in pretty well in the third quarter. Revenues were really strong. So three months ago, what we were all saying, which is like, well, this quarter was good, but the next quarter is going to be a disaster and the guidance is bad. Well, now fast forward three months, we've had, you know, the same kind of quarter. And I think maybe the equity markets are learning to live with the risk of higher interest rates as long as there's an end in sight for the, the hiking. Where I get a little concerned is when you start looking at the valuations. And, you know, this is the first time in my career looking at this that if you if you stare at the the, the the bond market and the stock market on a risk adjusted basis you could argue that fixed income looks a lot more attractive than stocks right now it's, it's unusual to have a bear uh, bear market in equities where they don't actually become more attractive against basically every other asset class but if you look at again the, the sort of the equity risk premium um, has not risen this year it's actually fallen because interest rates on everything from treasuries to corporate bonds to municipals to high yield um, and everything else have risen by so much, and the uh, the equity market valuations have fallen as well, but not uh, risk-adjusted risk basis by as much. So just for an example, U.S. large-cap stocks and U.S. investment-grade corporate bonds are down both by about 20% this year. Um, so the question is, coming out of a soft patch in the economy, if it starts to taper off its pace of hiking, or maybe even starts to think about cutting towards the end of next year, 2024, um, what does the best you know, the soonest. And history would tell us that it tends to be fixed income, specifically credit, that sort of rallies first in the uh, in the new cycle. So I don't think it's as cut and dry as saying it's time for investors to get into equity markets or at the bottom, even if we are at the bottom, because there might be other asset classes that involve a bit less market risk that offer 
really good opportunities, especially for investors that need income. Brian, before we get to asset allocation in a few moments, to circle back on the Fed, to run with that a bit further, knowing how influential the central bank has been on market activity investor sentiment this year, what are your policy expectations through, let's say, the first quarter of 2023? And what do you believe the prospects are for a policy error by the Fed? Yeah, well, I'll Full disclosure, if you'd asked me this question at any point during 2022, I would have got the answer wrong because they could, like everybody else, uh, like like certainly the market consensus. Um, and I think the Fed itself, I've been surprised um, as to just, just the swiftness uh, and the sharpness of the in- increase we've seen in interest rates. Um, so with, with that, you know, keeping scoop of, of salt uh, aside, um, I think we are, you know, closer, much closer to the end of this. Uh, hiking cycle, I think we're going to see a 75 basis point hike at the November meeting, which is you know just um, happening now um, in, in just a few weeks. And then the December meeting uh, seems to me like a close call between 50 and 75. I still am not sure we're going to get enough evidence, the kind of evidence that they would like to see, that will enable them to decelerate. So we could see 75 basis points. What's priced in now is sort of in between. Um, but then a, a probably a tapering off and maybe an end to those hikes, say, by the end of the first quarter, which would give them two more meetings to do um, smaller hikes. Uh, and that still gets us to a very, you know, historically sort of average, but highly restrictive for the last 15 years or so federal funds rate in that kind of in the 5% range. Um, and I think the Fed's going to try to stick there for as long as it can, um, which may invite um, a recession, which may invite, um, you know, all the the bad things that happen in the economy when we keep interest rates in restrictive territory, no, no relief for the housing market, for example, subdued new home construction at a time where we need a lot of new homes uh, being built uh, just from a demographics perspective. But I do think we are likely to be in a, in a much higher interest rate regime at least through the end of next year, uh, even if inflation moderates because the level of inflation is just so high that even a significant moderation would um, you know, only get us back down to levels that were merely Jason, to get your take on monetary policy over the next six months, what are your thoughts on the amount of rate hikes we might see from here and perhaps the risk of a policy error from the Fed? Well, in terms of the amount of hikes, we, you know, you almost, you know, guaranteed 75 basis point hike on November 2nd. Then it comes down to December, whether it's, say, 50 or 75. If it's 50, then maybe that makes 25 on February 1st, you know, you know, quite likely. Um, if it's 75, maybe they're done at that point in time. You add it all up, that's 150 basis points of, of rate hikes. I think that's a reasonable expectation uh, between now and, you know, say, the, the end of January. It may even have to be done sooner, which would take the Fed funds rate to between like 45 and 4.75%. So let's call it, you know, 4, 6, 4, 7, which is a, as a terminal rate would be a little less than the market's pricing, which is around 4.8, 4.9 right now, which is below where the Fed was. Uh, or the market was pricing it before this Wall Street Journal article that came out late last week. So I'd say a little bit less than maybe what the market's expecting, but the risk you is I think the Fed does does more than that. I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, and this is the point Brian made about you know keeping the Fed raising the funds rate high and keeping it elevated for a long period of time. They can sort of say we want to go maybe not quite as high as we you know could go, but we'll keep the rate there longer to try and kind of slowly squeeze out inflation rather than going really aggressive. And, and we know for sure it's going to be a hard landing. The problem with that approach is it's sort of, you know, it's not kind of credible in, in terms of their commitment to staying, keeping rates high. If things weaken, they can always sort of pull back or the market's going to start pricing and they're going to start cutting because the data is coming in and weaker. So I think it's if they really want to be sure that they cause a significant slowdown of economic activity to bring inflation down, it biases the model sequel to going kind of more aggressive. 
And then another factor, which may be less relevant now than it was even just a couple of weeks ago, is you know, it seemed like the Fed always had to out, you know, kind of out-hawk the markets, meaning it has to sound more aggressive, apply more rate hikes in the market's pricing, because anything less than that would be perceived as dovish. Financial conditions ease, it works against the Fed's objectives. We saw that happen in the September FOMC meeting. So there's almost a, kind of a game of tit-for-tat tit between the markets and the Fed. That, you know, The more the market expects, the more that maybe the Fed feels like it has to go beyond that. And the risk is that as a result, they, they go too far. If they're communicating through the Wall Street Journal or next week with uh, you know the, the Fed meeting and Jay Powell's press conference that they are conscious of going over tightening, I think that can avoid you know, that potential risk. But if they do so, then it opens up another risk, which is maybe they don't go quite far enough near term. They think things will, will get better on inflation. It turns out inflation stays sticky at like five plus percent. And next year, they almost have to restart hikes. And so the real pain comes with a deeper slowdown later next year. So I think there's still an elevator risk of a policy mistake for a variety of reasons. And, you know, in some sense, it's no fault of the Fed's. Well, you could say it's partly the fault of the Fed by by not being aggressive earlier. But given where they are right now, the challenges, the uncertainties of how this could play out, they could go too far right now or they could sort of pull back and then that leads to more pain later on. So I think either way, there's certainly an elevated risk of, um, of a policy mistake at some point in time. Now, outside of the Fed, another consideration we've been mindful of throughout the course of 2022, that being the U.S. midterm elections, which at this point, just a couple of weeks away, so coming up very soon. Brian, how much of a market event might this election cycle be? Well, I think maybe with a very short kind of brief interlude, I think the market's have for the most part been pricing in uh, a very high chance of divided government coming out of this election where you'll have at least one, if not both, uh, houses of Congress in control of the Republicans while you still obviously have a Democrat in the White House. And we know from experience what that means, which is not a whole lot gets passed legislatively, but you do have opportunities for a lot of sort of market moving, at least over short periods, gridlock. Um, I was thinking about the period from 2011 to 2016, which happens to overlap almost exactly with the years I was at UBS. Uh, we, we spilled a lot of ink about government shutdown, debt ceiling, um, and the risk of these things and what it meant for markets. And it only really mattered over very brief periods. The, the, the most severe event I can recall was in the middle of 2011 when you had not just a government shutdown, but a sort of a debt ceiling near breach. I think most people who were in the markets uh, at that time will recall that. Um, and what ended up happening was that just due to the political dysfunction and the refusal of Congress to raise the debt ceiling without uh, an agreement from the Obama administration at the time to cut um, spending resulted in a you know downgrade by standard and Poor's of the U.S. Treasury debt um, and a, a market, you know, not, not a collapse, but a, a, a severe market event that impaired equity markets and credit markets for uh, at least the next several months. Uh, but there was a swift recovery, um, and it wasn't economically damaging in the way you might think. Um, in fact, I think that weekend, the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries both rallied, despite the fact that they were both sort of at the epicenter of the, the crisis at the time. So there was a flight to safety. The economy was not in fantastic shape at that time, as we know, coming out of the financial crisis. But a pretty good model, I think, for the type of severe political generated event that we could see kind of roiling the markets starting next year. But the list of legislative likely accomplishments in the next Congress is 
is quite short with the mix that we're likely to get. Thank you for that, Brian. Jason, I know you and the Chief Investment Office have done a lot of work on this over the course of this past year with respect to the ongoing series of Election Watch publications and coverages. What are your thoughts on the midterms as serving as a market event? Brian covered it well. It's, uh, there might be something for the markets for think about for a day or two, but if we get the result that has been widely expected, that of it's a divided government, that pretty much puts any legislative actions, at least on the fiscal front, off the table for the next two years. You know, uh, you know, the market's going to go, okay, that's great. We move forward. There's a little bit of maybe like, okay, that's just one other uncertainty we can not think about. So that's a positive. I think that it comes down to for more like kind of maybe sector implications because what, what can be done is more, you know, regulatory or, or sort of policy measures. So it might matter for like in the energy sector, for example, more so than the, the overall markets. But when we think about all the factors driving financial markets right now, I think the election is, is pretty low on the list in terms of, of magnitude and importance. Thank you, Jason. I do want to pivot over to asset allocation and the time remaining that we have, maybe beginning with risk assets, U.S. equities. And Brian, I know equity investors have had a very challenging 2022. At the moment, where are you seeing opportunity within U.S. equities relative to other developed markets or even emerging markets? You know, if, if everything goes according to plan, at least our plan, um, we are expecting to see moderating inflation next year um, without a severe recession, um, rates to level off at elevated levels, um, and then probably taper back down to something that looks more like the 2010 starting in the middle of this decade. Um, and if that ends up being the, the scenario we get, I mean, I think that'll be a return to the types of assets and the types of um, uh, sectors that outperformed for you know most of the 2010s, even into the, the very beginning of 2020, which was you know U.S. growth stocks um, again for for a world in which growth is scarce, uh, you want to own higher growth assets. Um, we still like the U.S. over the rest of the world, partially because we like growth, and the U.S. is one of the growthiest markets. China looks like a, just a huge risk um, in just so many ways, from from how they're being managed economically to the geopolitical risks that they present, especially vis-a-vis Taiwan. And then you also have in the developed markets, Europe, uh, facing a multi-year challenge, um, weaning themselves off of Russian energy and, and ensuring it doesn't drive them into a state of sort of semi-permanent recession because they just aren't set up as well as the U.S. economy is to resist um, what we've seen, which is you know the rise in energy uh, prices and the shortage of a lot of the types of energy that they need uh, for home heating, and also for um, uh, for, for gasoline and uh, and other uh, industrial energy uses. So, if we're looking sort of from a macro perspective, the U.S. still looks like the best game in town. The valuations will almost always tell you that the international markets uh, should be favored. But I think um, with so much uncertainty um, and with the Fed seeming like it's a bit more ahead of the curve on inflation, um, we we like you know the U.S. over the the rest of the world at this point. Hey, Brian, just a kind of follow-up question for you, like on this preference for, you know, ultimate kind of for growth stocks, kind of going back to the regime that, you know, where growth did very well for a number of years pre-pandemic. How do you sort of like weigh the view that inflation will be slow to come down, so it's going to be elevated, you know, certainly above 2%, potentially quite a bit above 2% for at least a few years, if not longer. Rates, therefore, likely to be higher. Uh, and so the low inflation, low rate environment that we had before, and even low Normal GDP growth environment that that could change, so that paradigm, at least for the time being, would suggest at least the conditions, the macro conditions for that really were so great for secular growth stocks, they may not reappear in the next few years. So when you think about that potential environment, 
when you think of then growth versus value, like how much do you put into that? Do you think ultimately investors want to rotate back to growth? Like how do you kind of weigh all these things as a driver for the you know really the kind of growth versus value call? Yeah, the, the timing of a of a kind of a normalization or return to the 2019-2020 economy is, is kind of fraught with um, you know the, the risk of inflation remaining high and then you know the, the response to that being the continuation of um, high interest rates at least relative to what we've become accustomed to. So I, I don't subscribe to the you know new paradigm argument that you know things are going to be different and stocks and bonds aren't going to be correlated in the same way. I you know, I think I think COVID still explains a lot of what we're seeing, the aftershocks from the pandemic, um, the mismatches we're seeing in the labor market, the necessity uh, for rates to rise to address, you know, the types of the weird kind of vintages of inflation that we've seen, supply chain driven or, you know, profit margin driven or labor market driven. I think these things will work out. And I think all the problems that we had as sort of a global economy in the 2010s are still there. We still have an aging problem. We're still going to have a savings glut. We still have a lack of relatively safe income-producing securities. And I think all those things will tend to drive us back down to, you know, not not quite the Japanification of the world that I think people were were you know prophesizing before the pandemic hit, but but something that looks more like that lower for longer, um, unspectacular GDP growth with with productivity and population growth just not quite you know matching what what um, what we'd seen for example in the 1980s and 1990s so uh, i i i won't say there's never anything new under the sun but I, I i tend to think that certainly by the middle of this decade we'll be back in that place and there therefore the, the higher growth assets um will tend to be rewarded in much the same way that they were in the 2010s but it could take a while brian i did want to come back to you to get your views on fixed income what looks most attractive to you at the moment considering we are in a rising rate environment yeah so we're we're spoiled for riches in fixed income which is not something i've really been able to say at another point in my career but you know if you look at yields across every market um we think they look attractive especially when you consider that you know if you're comparing them to sort of backward looking inflation yeah everything's underwater but if you if you Look, look at them in a world in which, you know, headline CPI next year is likely to be, you know, somewhere in the in the three, maybe four percent range. Um, you know, a lot of these things are, are providing you with really nice real rates of return um, just from the coupon. So um, whether it's investment grade corporates, um, higher rated municipals, uh, you can move to things like high yield corporates. I think we're probably moving a bit from floating to fixed rate in terms of our preferences given that I think we're closer to the top in interest rates and, and floating rates have, have outperformed as, as rates have been going up. Um, but, you know, again, you haven't been able to get very excited about bonds uh, for, for many, many years now, well over a decade. Um, and I think the fact that most of what's priced into, especially these corporate bonds, are more more interest rate risks. So most of the rise we've seen have been driven by higher rates, not higher spreads. Um I think that makes them a bit more durable in the event that um, that I'm wrong and that we get a severe recession next year. Uh, I think they hold up somewhat better. Not to say that everything is priced in and all these bonds have risks of higher defaults and you know market runs and that kind of thing. But I think investors are being reasonably compensated in sort of a, a probability weighted way for the different scenarios that could come to pass next year. Jason, to get your thoughts on asset allocation, just given the outlook with respect to monetary policy and overall market outlook over the next three to six months, what is the CIO recommending with respect to asset allocation? 
Well, you know, I mentioned earlier in my comments that the markets are likely to remain choppy and volatile, as we've seen for the past six months. So that's kind of the backdrop. We also don't think necessarily that the S&P has hit uh, you know, the, the low of this cycle. So there's certainly you know, your downside risk. So I think the, the overall message we would have is you know, you know, pro- you know, protect you know, for some downside risk for the next kind of three to six months. But if you start looking at a uh, you know, six to 12 month outlook, we see actually sort of more opportunity there. So it's a little bit of protecting near term to get through what could be a challenging winter, but also stay invested for what we think will be a better upside opportunity, get into you know, the middle and the second half of next year, moving into, into year end. So that's kind of the overarching kind of view. The um, you know When we think about different sort of asset class positionings, We've been incrementally getting more defensive in our sector allocation uh, within equities, and we continue to think that's the, the right you know, position to have. Where applicable, you can buy downside protection you know, using the options and structured securities. It's actually quite cheap right now, given the nature of the volatility in the marketplace. So that's something I think for those who can do that in a portfolio, that's not a bad way to protect. We're at relatively low kind of insurance cost right now. Uh, but also sort of staying committed because there is valuation opportunities opening up within U.S. markets and U.S. equities, but also certainly outside of the U.S. where there's been more headwinds, but the valuations kind of reflect a lot of that negative news already. Then the on the fixed income side, we've had a kind of up in quality theme for a while. The idea is, you know, you can get now decent income and yield without taking a lot of risk. Uh, so we just think about where, where you know treasury yields are over four percent. You know we haven't seen this in a number of years. Uh, and then if you go even to you know relatively safe, you know uh, you know, other parts of the fixed income landscape, including things like uh, you know mortgage-backed securities that are backed by Fannie, Fannie and Freddie, have yields over five, almost six percent. And these are essentially government guaranteed or AAA securities. So there's things where we'd say like your portfolio or your fixing on portfolio more towards uh, those asset classes, including investment grade corporate credit. You don't need to take you know, the risk right now in, in high yield or senior loans, you know, which are asset classes that we've moved to sort of least preferred within our overall portfolio. So again, sort of up in quality. Another asset class we've liked for a while has been commodities, but we've downgraded that from most preferred to a neutral status. The, we still like oil within that. Um, you know, oil has good sort of fundamentals that would suggest prices can go higher. It's also a geopolitical hedge, but other parts of the commodity complex, such as metals, uh, you know, are tied more to global growth in China in particular, and China's growth right now still continues to, to kind of struggle. So that looks less attractive. And seeing with gold, where we think it's a, it's a headwind for gold when central banks like the Fed are raising interest rates. So where you can you know, focus your portfolio on your commodity allocation more towards exposure to oil, even in equities, we like energy stocks. And within that, you can even get more specific to companies that are more tied to kind of oil price fluctuations on the view that there's more kind of upside there. So those are the things that we're kind of doing. Be prepared for volatility, have some downside protection if you are fully invested. But if you're not invested from a medium to long-term perspective, there's a decent opportunity to be adding some risk here. And within fixed income, you can do that without taking actually a lot of extra credit risk given the yields that are in place right now. We're coming to the end of our time together today. Again, Jason, Brian, appreciate all of the ground that you've covered for our listeners, our clients. Maybe we can close out with any final thoughts or takeaways, anything you both would like to reinforce. And uh, Jason, what we'll do is we'll provide our guests Brian Nick with the final word. So I'll go to you first, Jason, with any final thoughts or takeaways you might want to share. 
Well, consistent with this notion of markets are being volatile, a lot of kind of swings. Uh, you know, we are in, in October already up, you know, a decent amount, and the momentum and the sort of the technical positioning perspective suggests this could kind of grind higher until something, you know, kind of maybe changes on on terms of Fed guidance, Fed interest rate policy, or economic data. But I think you know, be careful to to not to chase this. We've seen this story before in the summer. Um, something can happen and very quickly kind of reverse. I think that's the dynamic we're in right now with kind of these swings where things kind of rally on better news and very quickly they can reverse, you know, just as quickly. And I think that's the that's sort of the, the the reality we face for the next couple of months, especially as we get into year end and liquidity in the markets tends to dry up. So I think you have to be cautious of of things kind of really kind of turning potentially negatively. But by later in the first quarter, we expect that some kind of green shoots to start emerging, first with maybe the Fed and other central banks kind of pausing on rate hikes uh, and starting to provide a more balanced or ultimately kind of a double outlook. But so near term, more volatility, be prepared for that for the winter before the kind of green shoots start to appear, hopefully in the, in the spring of next year. Thank you, Jason. Brian, I'll go to you for any final thoughts or takeaways you would like to share with us. Sure. I, I would just say that, you know, to the extent that investors are Sitting on more cash than than they normally would, which you know from the flows that we see across the industry is, is probably the case. Um, congratulations if, if you've gone to cash or at any point earlier in the year, uh, you time things pretty well. But part of timing the markets is not just knowing when to get out, but when to get back in. So I think it's it's not too early to be having those conversations about rebalancing, about making sure you're on track to. Uh, to, to achieve those long-term financial goals you might have. And, and believe it or not, when you look at those financial plans, they might be um, showing that it's a bit easier to do that now that interest rates are a bit higher. But you need to be uh, invested in things, again, other than cash, where rates may look somewhat more attractive now but could come back down very quickly. Um, there's other ways to, to, um, to, to position to get whatever that yield you need, 4%, 5%, 6%, whatever it might be. Um, but you're going to need to take some risk somewhere in the markets to do that. Uh, and as you're thinking about 2023, even if the macro picture doesn't look all that clear, one thing you can know for sure is that um, most asset classes, the vast majority of them, are valued to produce much higher long-term returns than they were to start the year 2022. Um, and so having a plan to put cash to work, having a plan to rebalance are two of the you know the best kind of financial hygiene-related uh, actions that you could be taking now as we uh, um, you know, find ourselves firmly now in the fourth quarter. Well, Brian, Jason, thank you again for dropping by UBS on Air Market Moves for the How Should I Be Positioned podcast, hearing all of your insights into a range of macro market topics and the guidance there on asset allocation during these turbulent times. Very helpful to our listeners, our clients. So thank you again both for your time. It was great connecting with you both. You're welcome. Thanks, Brian. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 